We've had a good time already, haven't we, this morning? Well, we're going to spend some time this morning uh, kicking off a new sermon series, uh, concluding the book of Genesis. And actually, there's a considerable amount left to talk about in, in the book. And we'll start with Genesis chapter 34 through 36 this morning. I would encourage you actually to take your Bibles out if you've got them, because we're going to cover a fair amount of uh, land, uh, uh, of uh, uh, text this morning. We've titled the series Profiles of Courage, uh, take off of without any copyright infringement of Profiles in Courage, that book that John F. Kennedy wrote. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize before I was born. It's kind of fun to say it that way, actually, before I was even born. There's a crazy story, actually, around JFK and the book. We'll talk about that next week, actually. But essentially, it, was, it is a compilation of eight short biographies of senators who lived courageous lives. Uh, dramatic changes, bravery that was involved in it, and the consequences of it impacted countless other lives along the way. But this is what is interesting about those profiles. It, 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 none of them are exactly the same. Uh, you don't have to necessarily have a blue blood heritage to be a courageous person. You don't have to be a person with privilege. You don't need to have a degree. It doesn't matter. The path between where a person is and courage doesn't require an education, credentialing, or even a bloodline. It's actually, uh, it's actually one that we can all travel on and become courageous people. In fact, I was, reading, I was listening to an interview with Jimmy Connors as he was coaching a young man who had been number one in tennis in the, in the world and then had declined and was trying to get back to it. And during this interview, Jimmy Connors was talking about the challenges of being number one in the world. And he said this. He said, the difference between the number one tennis player in the world and the number 151 player in the world is all right up here. There's no discernible difference in skills. They all have essentially the same capacities or ability to be able to be number one, except for what happens right up here. The difference between, between them is the way a person thinks. And in much the same way with courage, as we look at the profiles of people that are courageous, we realize that the difference between a person who has courage and who does not have courage is, doesn't require the kinds of things we might think we need to add to our life in order to get to that place where we're people of courage. It happens when we reconsider the way we think about ourselves and the world and the, uh, and, and the God that we serve. Courage can actually be a discernible character trait in your life and mine, and you do not need to be more equipped with stuff to accomplish that. You just need to grasp basic fundamental beliefs. You and I are this close to living lives of courage. And as we walk through this story this morning and all the way up through, uh, uh, through November, we're going to look at the example of a young man who was a profile in courage and realize, I hope, that there can be profiles of courage all around us, even in our lives, as we learn the things that God wants us to understand here. So would you pray with me as we begin this time in God's Word together? God, thank you that we uh, have the opportunity to gather in a place like this uh, with family and, and, and uh, uh, people that are like family to us and becoming like family. And we can actually not only listen to your word, but we can actually interact with it and dialogue and 
encourage one another, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen, that, that the profiles of our lives would be characterized more and more by discernible courage. And God, give us the humility to listen, the, the capacity to hear, and, uh, and the boldness to walk into what you have for us. As always, Lord, we pray that you would use your word in the extraordinary and supernatural ways that you do as we pay attention this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story actually could start, it is the story of, of Joseph. It could actually start in Genesis chapter 37, but that would actually be doing disservice to the story because it's set up. There are these chapters, 34, 35, and 36 really, that are between uh, the stories that we've talked about before and the story that is being set up. And it is being set up. Uh, and you could go to the kind of interesting stuff in 37, and we will get there, but it would be a disservice to the realities of what courage is about and what God is like if we actually skipped over it. So um, we're going to look at the darkness that is described in chapters 34 and 35 in particular. Now, I know about darkness, and maybe some of you do, but not quite in the same way that I know about darkness. For me, the darkness crept in about Thursday uh, evening. You say, what in the world is Mark talking about? The Green Bay Packers were playing the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, I don't want to hear that either. That doesn't help me. But, you know, right away, about midway through the second quarter, I realized that there was, that the light I had, the hope I had was just descending into this horrible darkness. You know how the way the NFL has set up this whole season, actually. Thursday night football game was, began with a whole bunch of players from different teams saying this, why not us? Why not us? And all of these players from all of these other teams, even the Chiefs, why not us? And it's this exhilarating sort of a thing. Yeah, why not us? And, 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 and now I realize for the Green Bay Packers, I know why not us. <laughs> It's because of the Seattle Seahawks that it won't be us. So my season is just like there is no hope for the Super Bowl. I saw Seattle play. I'm wearing red today, so you know maybe it is the Chiefs, and I'm going to be a homer and, and cheer for them as well too. But eventually get to the point where the realities come along and you say, ah, another season, dashed hopes. Well, uh, I don't want to go any further with that one. Uh, what, what, what if your dreams, what if your hopes for your life actually are far more substantial than your favorite football team winning the Super Bowl? And we have those dreams, don't we? Joseph was a dreamer. Uh, some folks have stopped dreaming. Have you? You know, life occurs, and you, you, you see things that actually are true of life and you realize that those dreams you had are hanging by a thread at best. Any of your dreams hanging by a thread? You know, the kind of dream that causes you to weep inside when no one's around to observe you. Legit dreams, I mean. Dreams of significance, of relationships, of contentment, dreams of joy, of wisdom for you or your kids, trajectory of a life, all of those kinds of things. Genesis 37 may be where we would prefer to start in this story, 
But God doesn't start there. He, he takes us to life's real places and encourages us to dream again. Let's look what that looks like. Please open your Bibles and let's look at the darkness, really, that is involved in this. I want to read uh, chapter, part of chapter 34, and I trust you'll go back this week and spend a little bit more time in the text and notice some of the things that we talk about this morning. But in chapter 34, verse 1, it begins rough. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamer the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. Shechem, young man who lived a life of privilege, and he sets his eyes on Dinah, and he takes advantage of her, and he seduces her. In the NIV, it's described as rape, and it is that, but it's even more complicated than that. You see, there's a seduction here that's engaged in this, and the words in the Hebrew actually indicate that it's more than just a brutal one-time rape. There's a seduction is involved. This is a manipulative power play. You see, for Shechem, it was more than a passing fancy. He wanted her as his wife. In fact, the text seems to indicate, or does indicate, um, that Dinah actually was seduced by him. It said the young woman spoke tenderly to her. We, the, in the Hebrew, it actually says this, that he wins her by love that spoke to her heart. Literally, that's what the Hebrew says. So he has not only taken her and seduced her, but he has spoken love to her heart and she's taken by it. This is, this, is a, this is a horrifically brutal and manipulative thing this person in power does to this young woman. And it is horrific, which is why her brothers react in verse 7 as it says, they were filled with grief and they were filled with fury. This stranger to them took her purity, but more than that, this stranger to them took her heart and now he wants to take her from their family as well. And so the narrator says in chapter 7, in, in verse 7 at the end, such a thing ought not to be done. And everybody listening to this story would say, absolutely. This is a gross violation of anything that is right. This is the first of many wrongs that are described in this story. The second one comes along when Shechem tries to make a wrong a right, Shechem and his father. They attempt to right the wrong with economic inducements. Hey, why don't we just intermarry? And we will both benefit from a trade windfall that will help both of us. You know, let's just make us one people, as the text says in verse 16, and then again in verse 22. You know, you and us as the Canaanites, let's become one. And, and we see the second wrong here that's described. This is absolutely nothing but wrong. And if we've been reading the book of Genesis, we'll pick it out right away. This is just not the way it was meant to be. In fact, we would even add such a thing like that 
ought not to be done, but we don't have to because everybody reading the text would know it. You don't intermarry. This is not God's plan for the advancement of his covenant with his people and with his people for the world. This is not the way it was to be done. They tried it once in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel incident, and we saw the disaster and the havoc that was wreaked by that. We also see it continuing on. In chapter 24, Abraham commands when he sends out a servant to look for a bride for a son, he says, do not seek anyone from among the Canaanites. And in chapter 27, Rebekah, regarding Jacob, says this, if he takes a wife from among the women of this land, my life will be not worth living. And it continues on, almost as if a cadence. In chapter 28, verse 11, Isaac commands, let no one, let my, my children not marry someone from among the Canaanites. This is the, the second wrong, to even imagine that a wrong can be made right by something that is so wrong in regards to God's plan for his people and for his promises and for his plan really for the world. That's the first wrong and the second wrong. There's a fourth wrong in this story. And no, I haven't missed the third. I'll get back to that. But let me describe the fourth wrong next. It's the reaction of the brothers the reaction of the brothers to what's happening here is, is cunning deceit. Now, this is what Jacob grew up with. You remember the story of Jacob. And Jacob walked away from it, and yet somehow it filtered down into the lives of his sons. No one would be surprised by that, would they? But they have taken it another level. It has gone from cunning deceit to cruel and cunning vengeance. And we see that in, verse, in chapter 34. Look at verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem, who has made this arrangement that they thought would be attractive to both of them. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition, only that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not, but if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and grow. Their proposal, verse 18, seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. So they gather all of the young men and tell them the bad news. I mean, you're kidding. No, we're not kidding. This is what's going to happen. And so they gather together and they do the ritual of circumcision. And uh, as they're healing, Levi and Simeon and this group of people come in and they engage in genocide of all of those men and take everything they had. This is a horrific wrong, punctuated and, uh, and, 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 and displayed even in the text by Jacob's response to Simeon and Levi in, chapter, in verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people in this land. We're few in number. If they join forces against me and attack me, I and my house will be destroyed. It is essentially this thing. What in the world, young men, have you done? And they need to flee then. They intended to stay here. You go back to the end of chapter 33 and they actually had purchased land in this place. 
And they had pitched their tents and set up an altar in chapter 33, verse 20, an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means mighty is the God of Israel. They intended to live there, to dwell there, and to worship there. And now it was lost to them. This, this altar called mighty is the God of Israel, it might be true, but for those that bear his name, we discover that they are foolish and they are weak and they are misguided. They're cunning deceit. It is remarkably wrong. And then we go to the third wrong, and it was their motive for their deceit. In verse 13 of chapter 34, we realize they did this because this was about their honor and their family's honor. Look what they've done to us, they essentially say, to their father. And to those that bear God's name, it will always be about God's honor. And so they have gone out ahead of anything God wanted, plans out far ahead of God and his plans, and made decisions based on disrespect and dishonor to them rather than to their God. And here we see the third wrong. Do not live with a motive that is all about the honor of your name when you've decided your life is to be lived all about the honor of his name. And so they act recklessly, vengefully, and cruelly. There is irony here in this wrong, and it is this, that the action that they took, ironically, leads to the kind of success that allows God's plan to move forward, because the intermarriage never took place. It just took place, it just didn't take place for cruel reasons rather than appropriate ones. Darkness, darkness, darkness. All over this story, they need to flee and as they flee, we turn into chapter 35, and we see Jacob telling them to, to, to uh, get their household ready, to purify themselves, to get rid of all the foreign gods. And it sounds like they're in the right direction. And then in verse 4, we re read that Jacob, at least Jacob's responsible for what happens here, the family buries their gods in the ground, it says, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. If God is the mighty one of Israel, they have decided that if God doesn't turn out to be as mighty as they need him to be, there's a good backup plan. You can always go back and unbury the idols that weren't destroyed. There's a sermon there, isn't there? And then we keep continuing on in chapter 35, with verse 13. It says, and God went up from him at that place. And scholars look at this and they sense that there's a hint of God just coming down and reminding them again that he is the mighty God. And then stepping back and saying, okay, now let, let, let's see if you'll do it again your way. But that distance from them, that's a part of this darkness as well. And then we, get, we read in, uh, in verses 17 and 18 that after much travail, 
Jacob, uh, Rachel is about to give birth has great difficulty. And in verse 17 it says, And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Ani, which means son of my trouble. She looked at the world she was living in, what was happening with her family, and she saw trouble everywhere. Darkness, darkness, darkness. And it continues. We get to verse 22, and we discover that Reuben sleeps with what was essentially his father's wife in a polygamous household. He actually sleeps with his father's wife. This explains the disheritance for Reuben in chapter 49, and we will get there eventually. Now what we see is a parade of three sons, son number one, son number two, son number three. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, all three sons, those who, were, who stood to be the chief inheritors of his father's wealth and power and influence, have all failed. And the fourth one is now up, Judah, next in birthright privileges. And then this story becomes about Judah, and we'll see him in this story, but you'll see this is just absolute darkness. All of the hopes and dreams that someone would have for a family and for the way life would be are just, are just cloaked in this darkness. But in the midst of this, it's important to notice another strain here that works its way through the story. And it is more than a story of darkness. There's a story actually of sovereignty here. Of God's sovereignty in the midst of it. And it is a progression here that comes to this point in the midst of this darkness and asserts this, that people do die and time marches on and darkness marches on. But there's one thing that happens in the midst of all of that and it is this, God's covenant promises march on as well. In fact, they are undeterred. God is determined to fulfill his promises. You recall those in Genesis 15, that he would be with his people and for his people, that he would be the one that would care for them and be their strength and the one that provides everything they need for a life of life and godliness. And he would provide Messiah to be able to be there for them. This was his promise, that he would be there with his people in the midst of their life, advancing towards the culmination where the Messiah would sit on the throne and they would all be together in that place. Not all in Genesis 15, but there were, there were, there were the, the, the reference points uh, uh, to that there and other places as well. And then we go from the, the beginning of that Genesis, uh, to Genesis 35. Some 200 years have gone on since that first promise was made. Back in Genesis 12 is, is where we see that. And 23 chapters later, 200 years later, into this covenant experience, we find that everything is still intact. What do you know? What God has promised and the way he would do it is still intact. No shortage of scrapes and bruises along the way. In fact, uh, one scholar has said over a dozen times in this story, the covenant has dangled by a single thread. We sit back, humanly speaking, and we say, it's just about to blow up. It's about to fall, to crash, and burn. It's hanging on by a single thread. And it's actually here if these young men would have relented and gone the way Shechem wanted them to go. It's like the promises are dangling by a single thread. And yet we see over and over again, and here in particular, God's intentions, God's plan, His promises, His covenant for this world will always be characterized by an, an, an inevitable advance. 
God's promise to you, to his people, and to the world through us will always be characterized by inevitable advance. We even see it here in this story. In chapter 35, verse 5, we see God protecting him. We read this, Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. I mean, here they are, these people who have engaged in incredible violence and foolishness and, and a mess, buried, buried their gods in the ground, lest God not handle things the way they wish. And yet there he is, even in that, protecting his people as they move forward. Because the covenant promises of God to his people will always inevitably advance. And we see it continue on where he reminds them of who he is as he did in chapter 33 and again in chapter 35, verse 11. And God said to him, God appeared and he said, Remember, I am the God Almighty. These are my promises for you. Be fruitful and increase. A nation will come out of you. Out of them? God, are you sure? And he says, No, I am sure. I am God Almighty. And my promises will always advance, giving them directions, showing them grace. There is a power to this rule that is extraordinary. God is able to overcome whatever obstacles arise. God's sovereignty is not even circumvented by human evil. I mean, this is breathtaking in this story to see these young men led by Simeon and Levi doing such horrendous acts of wickedness, and yet somehow God dovetails these horrendous acts with his own plans, and even through their acts, God advances his promises. Unbelievable. What we see here is not a collection of happily ever after stories that just kind of fall one after the other, characterizing the advancement of God's promises. We see stories of darkness, of foolishness, of revenge, and in the midst of them, God somehow dovetails those together with his plans. When all seems to be hanging in the balance, when everything seems to be hanging by a thread, humanly speaking, yet relentlessly advancing, we see the promises of God. So what are the implications for us? Let me just mention a couple here. First one is this, and it, it, doesn't this just give you in renewed confidence or greater confidence in the integrity of this book. I mean, who tells stories like this? There, there are stories that are this embarrassing or more in families, and they just don't come out in the open. These are the kinds of stories that families hide. If you're trying to impress the world with the character of who this God is, you just don't put stories in a book like this without considerable confidence that God will speak even through the stories that characterize the mess of his people. God just, God just does it. This isn't a book that's put together to do anything but display in the most clear terms the character of the grace of God to us and to our world. But there's another element to this, and that is the reflection that God would want us to have on his intentions for this particular story to be told. And I believe it is this. For those who place their trust in the Lord, life never hangs in the balance. For those of us who place our trust in the Lord, 
regardless of the way it looks or even the way it feels, life never hangs in the balance. God is always sovereignly in control in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the deceit, in the midst of the turnarounds. God is always there even in the midst of your life and my life never rests on my shoulders. It just doesn't. I don't need to manage it for God because it's going poorly. I just need to walk courageously through the darkness because he's there. He might not be seen by most, but there he is. In fact, there he was. David says in Psalm 139, verse 12, even the darkness won't be darkness to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You see, I see darkness. I, I saw darkness, but the darkness is as light to the sovereign God who has made promises to his people. And is always advancing on that promise in our lives. Is your hope hanging by a thread? Is your read on what's happened in your life in the past a story you don't want to tell? God's promises never hang by a thread. In fact, even in the midst of those stories, you may not want to remember. If you look again you will notice that God is there in the presence of cunning, in the presence of disappointing reversals, in the presence of betrayal, and in the presence of seemingly broken dreams. And we'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. How will I live with courage in the darkness? How can I live with courage along the way? I'm going to suggest a couple of things as we conclude. The first is this. If you look back on episodes of your life, seasons of your life, and all you see is darkness, if you feel like you're in a season of darkness right now, I would encourage you to reevaluate what's true. This is what Jacob did. This is what Jacob did. You see, Rachel had put a spin on what the reality was in verse 18 of chapter 35. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son, son of my trouble. But the father named him Benjamin. And essentially, the father named him, if you go back to the Hebrew, it's almost an identical word to Ben-Oni. You see, it's one of those words, Oni is one of those words that has a couple of meanings. It's it means trouble, but it also means of your right hand or the references to wealth or having everything that is needed. It's like the word mean. Mean can mean trouble or mean, a person of means, can mean wealth. It's the same word, but two totally different meanings. And Rachel was looking at the circumstances and she uses a word and for her, it means life is just filled with trouble and heartache. And yet there is her father saying, no, no, no. 
We're going to change that name just ever so slightly. Because life, even in the midst of trouble, is characterized by the wealth and the provision and the strength that God brings along the way. Rachel's trouble actually was her wealth. She simply couldn't comprehend it. What if you go back and rewrite your life story and rename it? You know, the Native American Indians, as I understand, when they would, when they would take a, a buffalo in the wild, uh, my understanding is that they would actually benefit from every single part of that animal. No part of it was thrown away. They used everything. And part of the reason why they did that was their respect for the regard of the life of that living thing. They would actually respect it by using every sim- single part of what that animal was. What if God is like that? What if God's regard for your life is so strong that he will actually use every single part of your life in a way that will lead to richness? What if he is that sovereign? What if in the midst of all of the things that everybody else categorizes as darkness, we see God still relentlessly advancing his covenant with his people? Because darkness is light to him. And that would be my encouragement. Go back, look again. And discover God's sovereignty and relentlessly advancing things that bring glory to him and hope to us. And then there's one more piece of this. It comes for those of you in this place that might say, you know what, my life has been characterized by Levi and Simeon type behaviors. Always to be out in front of what God wants rather than vitally connected and surrendered to him. The invitation is always there and it's necessary for it to be there. God longs for your life to be a life of a story of the relentless advancement of his grace and power and strength and courage. But it begins by the humility to say, I give my life to you, sovereign mighty God and it's no longer mine we use a number of phrases to describe giving our life to Christ accepting Christ being born again surrender coming back to the Lord it's just us simply saying God my life cannot function the way it was intended to be without you I need your forgiveness I need your grace I need your strength. I need your provision. And we end up with stories like these where at the end of the day we are able to say, while everyone else might have seen trouble, I see wealth 
I see everything I ever needed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for being this God to us, that you are the Almighty One. Pray, Lord, that you would just continue to shake the branches of our lives and, and challenge us to surrender and to live lives of fruitfulness because we know who you are and we've given ourselves away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.